Welcome to a new episode of this podcast series by the Program in International Nutrition at Cornell University, or as we call it, the PIN podcast. In this series, trainees in PIN interview leaders and rising stars in the field of international nutrition and global health. Today on the podcast, our interviewers include myself. My name is Sam, and I am postdoc associate in international nutrition here at Cornell, as well as a few other PIN trainees. Hi, I'm Kripa. Hello, everyone. I'm Elizabeth, a PhD student, and uh, I will introduce also or give it a chance to introduce us Christy, who will be here doing a little bit of our uh, tech issues. Hello, everyone. I'm also a PhD student. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. Our guest today is Dr. John Hadanat. John is the H.E. Babcock Professor of Food and Nutrition Economics and Policy in the Division of Nutritional Sciences at Cornell. His research focuses on the determinants and consequences of poverty, food insecurity, and undernutrition in low-income settings. So welcome to the podcast, John. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. So to start us off, we would love to hear more about your career trajectory from your positions at the International Food Policy Research Institute, Dalhousie, Oxford, and Princeton, and now here at Cornell. And how did you decide on a career in research? Thanks, Sam. Uh, thank you for that kind introduction. I'm really pleased to be here. I'm actually going to start the career trajectory question, though, in a slightly different place. When I was very young, my career trajectory was very clear in my mind. I was going to be a defenseman for my hometown ice hockey team, the Toronto Maple Leafs. It was fixed. That's what I was going to do. Until around the age of 12 or 14, at which point I worked out that fundamentally, not only was I not very big, I actually truthfully just wasn't very good. So I needed a new plan. And it was that point I was transitioning to secondary school. My parents looked at their 13-year-old academic slightly skinny son and thought the local school which leads the city of Toronto in teenage pregnancies is probably not the best place for him and they got me enrolled in a Catholic high school halfway across the city that was run by the Jesuit order of priests. Uh, for those of you who know Catholicism, Jesuits are very strong advocates of Catholic social justice teaching and so at that age I start, started to get exposed to those ideas in a really big deep kind of serious way. At the same time, I met a bunch of new friends that I never had before, and a lot of them got into punk rock. At some levels, almost kind of like the antithesis of what you would think Catholic social justice teaching was about, but it was great. It was loud, it was energetic, it really annoyed my parents, so those were three great features to the music right there. But there was also an element to it of saying, you know, you don't have to accept the world the way it is. You know, you can change the world, and it's right to be angry about injustice. So in that way, it wasn't actually so different from some of the things I was absorbing already. And the final part to this is my family for generations has had a long tra tradition of various forms of service, both public service and military service. Both my parents were in the military, both of my grandfathers, gazillions of uncles and great uncles and so on and so forth. So I also joined the military and eventually I be rose to the rank of captain. It also meant that I did a lot of training much of which surprisingly turns out to be really useful for people doing work in international settings. There's a lot of emphasis on leadership. There's a lot of emphasis on understanding how you need to plan, particularly planning for things that go wrong, which anyone who's done work in international nutrition know happens an awful lot. <laughs> you have to work under adverse conditions and work effectively. You also have to encourage and get others to work under those adverse conditions as well. So those were all kind of good skill sets to be developing, even if I didn't realize it at the time. 
final part to this is you learn a lot of humility. Um, you discover how tough it is to work under those conditions. And then you realize there are people who went before you who actually did extraordinary things under even more difficult circumstances. So for example, I had a great uncle who I never met because he died for, eventually from his war injuries, who was a fighter pilot in the First World War. And he was up on patrol one day and he saw 10 enemy planes moving forward to an attack a Canadian position. So anyone on outnumbered 10 to one would do the sensible thing, which was take off in the other direction. He kind of did the equivalent of saying to his navigator, hold my beer and went straight forward and attacked them. He shot down two planes, drove off the rest, probably saved several hundred lives before his own plane was shot down and in the wreckage, he lost his leg. He did that when he was 22 years old. And so anytime I think, oh, you know, I've done some pretty cool things. I think I'm a pretty cool person. It's good to remind yourself that, you know, other people do extraordinary things too. And you really shouldn't get too ahead of yourself or think too much of yourself. So I have all these things bumping around in my head, you know, in my late teens, early 20s. And then in 1983, 1984, there was a horrific famine in Ethiopia. And I think, you know, that is really awful. It would be really interesting, really cool if I actually could do something about that. And so at that point, you know, doing something about that, why you should do about that, some of the soft skills and you do that all started to coalesce, as did my undergraduate studies in economics. There was one small problem. Uh, do you want to guess what that was, Sam? I'm afraid to guess, but please. <laughs> you know that thing about the, about the punk rock? Oh. <laughs> uh, well, I went to a concert my junior year, and to this day, I maintain it was the best concert in my life I've ever went to. I was right down in the front, like dancing with crazy with everybody else. But who know, would know that in a crowded, sweaty mess of people singing at the top of their lungs, you could contract a viral disease. Um, so I contracted mononucleosis. I missed two months of my junior year. I knew was... it. I knew it was going to be mono <laughs> concert. Oh, infection. you should have guessed. Mono. <laughs> so it kind of put a, as you might imagine, significant debt in my grades. So after I finished my bachelor's degree at the University of Toronto in economics, I got a master's at York University, and that was largely to get my, my grades up. I applied to doctoral programs. I was lucky to get into the University of Oxford, where I did my doctorate. I was also lucky to be able to do fieldwork as part of that doctorate. And since then, I've had the fortune of iterating back and forth between holding university positions and positions in research institutes, where I've pursued the topics you identified at the, the top of our podcast. So maybe I'll stop there in terms of career trajectory and we can move on to some other things. Well, I think, I think that's a great connection or a great sort of bridge to, to our next questions, which is related to the skills. Because you, you talk a little bit about all that motivation and the sort of like the mental setup in a way to, to get you into this career path. But I wonder during those years of training uh, as a PhD, postdoc, what were some of those skills that then you found useful? Yeah, so I think this, although in my case, these skills were acquired several decades ago, I think the underlying question, I think also applies to people now entering into the field of international nutrition or starting out on those careers, and also people working in related areas, such as development economics more generally. What strikes me when I talk to people coming into these programs is they sort of focus on this idea that I'm here because I'm gonna write a thesis. 
And to be very clear, you know, at the doctoral level, that's a really important part of the process, right? But ultimately, it's not the thing which is going to carry you through over the course of your professional career. And I think there are three things which I would identify as being in some ways kind of more important skills to develop. One of these is the skill to learn how to learn on your own. As you guys all know, particularly in an environment like Cornell, if you have a problem or a question, there are loads of people you can go and talk to, right? Once you finish and you're out in the wider world, trust me, in a lot of places, there are gonna be far fewer people. So you're gonna to have to, in order to continue to develop professionally, you're going to have to learn how to actually acquire those skills as you go forward. So there's an element to PhDs and postdoc and postdoctoral studies, which is skills development, which is really important. In my case, as an economist, a lot of that was around quantitative methods and programming. But there's also the skill of how you actually acquire those skills. And that in itself is very important. The second thing is absorbing how you distinguish between good ideas from bad ideas. Um, because when you move forward in the world, as you develop your own research programs, or maybe you're in agencies doing interventions or developing policies, it's going to be really important for you to be able to stand up and say, oh, this is a good idea. Why? or someone else has presented an idea and you'd be able to, in a constructive but firm way, say these are the reasons why there are limitations or problems with it. And you do that in part by reading, but also by doing things like going to seminars. This is a very Cornell specific reference, but we have a, in international nutrition, as you all know, we have a, some, a series called NS7030 where students present recent papers and they critique them. And we also critique you then on your presentations. But at its core, a big part of that is actually looking at the paper and saying, was this a good idea? Was it a bad idea? Was it well supported? So I think that's a second really important skill. And I think the third skill I'd emphasize is writing and communications more generally. You guys and many of your peers, both here at Cornell and elsewhere, you have brilliant, wonderful ideas. But if you can't communicate them to others in ways that other people understand, those ideas are locked in your minds, locked in your heads. And that is a real loss. So learning how to communicate both orally and writing is also a third really important skill that I would encourage people to develop at this point in their careers. I'll follow up a little bit with that. So, I, and I'm taking notes, of course, this is like <laughs> skills to have right now, like, you know, let's, let's uh, try to maximize the time that we have in terms of doing our PhD and postdoc. But then afterwards, like, you know, while you're already there in the field of international nutrition, and like you said, going for academic positions and also NGOs or, or program type of uh, work. What are those, what are the skills that you, you use the most or you think we should also plan to, to or keep in mind to develop in this sort of like perhaps evolving field of international nutrition? So I think that becomes somewhat specific to exactly what area you're working on. Uh, in my case, because I do a lot of applied work, I do a lot of program and in intervention evaluation. So me, for me, statistics, econometrics, epidemiology techniques have been really important to continue to develop, as well as the programming that goes along with that. Um, as I've become somewhat more senior, or to sound really economistic, when the opportunity costs my time for doing some of these begins to rise, I increasingly do them with junior colleagues. And my role there is not necessarily to write the nitty gritty of the programs, although I still do that from time to time. But it's more to work with those colleagues in order to, in some sense, encourage them to write those programs correctly, 
to ask kind of in a big picture way how the analysis is going and so on and so forth. In other areas, in fact, the skill sets might be slightly different, okay? One of the things which has changed radically across the research landscape for all disciplines is just the tsunami, the enormous amounts of information which are now available. Um, as it happens, when I moved into my new office here in Cornell, I was going through old papers and I came across the reading list that I hand wrote out for my references when I was doing my doctorate. And it runs to just a couple of pages because that's all there was. You guys live in a world where you are swimming in information. Knowing how to make sense of that information, how to manage it is an important skill that I think you guys are all going to need as you continue to move forward. Yeah, I think you've alluded to um, part of maybe the answer you would give for my next question, which is looking to the future, what are the big issues in international nutrition? And you brought up um, the big, the just, you know, wealth of data that are coming in and have to be analyzed in some way and managed. Um, but yeah, maybe ex can you expand a little bit about that? Sure. So I think what I encourage you guys to do and your peers to do is start off by saying to yourselves, well, what are the big issues in the world today? What are the issues which are going to drive health and nutrition and economics and to a certain extent politics and social issues in the decades to come? And I would argue, particularly in international contexts, there are two which are probably the most salient. The first is demographic drivers. And in low and middle income countries, low income countries in particular, that's very rapid rates of urbanization. And the second, of course, is climate change and how that's going to affect a whole series of issues, including nutrition. Under the first urbanization, low-income countries, are, we know, are urbanizing very quickly. They're urbanizing far faster than high-income countries ever did. That creates some new opportunities and some new challenges. New opportunities because we have populations concentrated in much uh, smaller geographic spaces. And those combined with advances in information communication technologies, in some sense, makes it potentially easier to reach those individuals, as opposed to having to walk for miles in rural areas to go from one household to the next. But at the same time, it creates challenges. In rural areas, the pace of life is a little more slow. It's possible to arrange to get groups of people together, for example, to do nutrition SPC activities, right? People in urban areas live much more busy, sometimes chaotic lives. There aren't necessarily the same social networks or social connections. And so that makes it challenging, for example, to, to generate nutrition messaging. Climate change we know is gonna affect agriculture, it's gonna affect food production, it's gonna affect health conditions. And there are also, those are also then gonna play big roles in how those affect nutrition. So I would start off with those big issues and then see how your particular interests, whether they relate to overnutrition or overweight or obesity, which we know are rising in low and middle income settings, or our more traditional work on micronutrient malnutrition or on anthropometric outcomes, and how those fit in within those broader drivers. And of course, it's worth mentioning that we now have the challenge of some of those forms of malnutrition existing in the same places. So in places where we think undernutrition is driven in part by lack of access to energy in a caloric sense, you might think making cheap foodstuffs available is actually a potential policy mechanism we can use, right? But if those places also have high rates of overweight and obesity, making vegetable oil really cheap may not be the best solution, right? 
So that be, it becomes more challenging in that way as well. Thank you. So our next question is more about how you balance your work and uh, personal life and professional life, especially since we know you also travel a lot. So if you could just comment about comment on that. Well, Kripa, that is a great question for which, unfortunately, I do not have a very good answer. Uh, you guys sent me some sent me some of these questions in advance, and so I wrote myself some crib notes, and my crib note here just says poorly. Okay, um, to be clear. I am very fortunate. I have a very supportive family. I have a very supportive spouse uh, who is very generous about the way in which she was willing to put her career on hold for me to be able to do some of this work. To be clear, it is very hard to get this balance right. I think it's hard in any professional career, but particularly for our work in international nutrition, we work with some of the poorest, most deprived people in the world. And we do that work because we care about the welfare of our, our, of our fellow human beings. That's one of the reasons why I suspect all of us on this call get up in the morning and go to work, right? So you have this strong sort of moral imperative that this work is really important. But then you also have personal life considerations. And it feels really weird to get up in some days and say, you know, I'm really tired. You know, I really could do with some personal care time. And then say, you know, that must, you know, that sounds really self-indulgent, right? To some of the people I work with who will never have that opportunity because of the conditions they find themselves. So I think if it's something I was to do my career all over again, I try and think through more mindfully and try and do a better job on that. Thank you. And that is something we all struggle with, yeah. <laughs> and we're coming to the end of our time for today and we would like to close with a lighthearted question. Mm -hmm. Why do you always nearly wear black? Well, a lot of people notice that a lot of times, uh, both in a number of jobs, especially here at Cornell, I am almost always wearing like black jeans, black shirt, black shoes. And there's a reason or kind of a real reason for that and a reason which I would really like to be able to claim. So the real reason is actually kind of prosaic. I'm slightly colorblind. I have some difficulty with colors particularly with certain types of blues. So for example, I can't tell the difference between navy blue and black, for example. And I find it really hard to like match different colors. So it seemed to me the solution to this was just to wear black all the time. Um, but then there's another reason. There's an American singer who I really like. His name is Johnny Cash. He's now passed away. And he's one of these really interesting people. The first time you see him, he just likes like you know, to use an Americanism, like a good old country boy singing good old country songs. But then you start listening closely to his lyrics and you discover that he's this really subversive in his own way, social justice warrior, speaking to audiences who might not otherwise be receptive to those kinds of messages. And he always wore black. And he once once was asked, well, why, you do, why do you do that? And he wrote down the answer in some song lyrics. And he sings, I wear the black for the poor and the beaten down living in the hopeless, hungry side of town. I wear it for the prisoner who has long paid for his crime, but is there because he's a victim of the times. Well, you and I were doing mighty fan, I do suppose. We were doing mighty fine, I do suppose, in our streak of lightning cars and our fancy clothes. But just so we're reminded of the ones who are held back, up front there ought to be a man in black. 
Well, that is a great end to this wonderful podcast um, segment. Thank you so much, Dr. John Hadanat, for all of your time today. I think um, we are all on mute usually while you speak, but if the listeners could hear us laughing and giggling at some of your stories and anecdotes, I think that would make it really, um, it would be great if they could hear that. Um, So thank you again. It was really great to learn about everything you've done and are doing. Thank you very much. Thanks for having the opportunity to take part in this podcast. Thank you. Um, And thank you to everyone who has subscribed to this PIN podcast, especially our youngest listener. We hope you're enjoying listening while hiking with your dad. Stay Stay tuned for more insightful conversations with amazing researchers in international nutrition and global health. Thanks for listening. And many thanks to Elena Kerki for audio edits for our theme music.